Welcome, everybody, to LA Not So Confidential, episode 121. This is Dr. Scott. I'm here with the brilliant and devious and kind Dr. Shiloh. That's the trifecta that is me. Thank you. You're a parent. You have to be devious, right? That's the only way parents survive these days, I think. I was that way before I was a parent. <laughs> way before it was a parent. Hey. Hey, How are you? so good. I'm doing good. I went to my first small group gathering Christmas party last night with a group of people that we all used to get together pre-COVID like a couple of times a year. Yep. So this was the first time I'd seen people in three years. And now we're all, everybody was really careful and the windows were open and everybody's double, triple vax and boosted. But now we're all like, okay, was it a spreader event? Let's, oh, let's God. hope not. <laughs> I hope not. Right. But I hope it's not important either. to see those folks again, for sure. But hey, folks, if you are downloading Loading this episode and listening on the day of its release. This is particularly pertinent to what is happening tonight. Yep. I mean, we're recording ahead of time, but you're listening to it today. So it's happening tonight. Tonight, Dr. Shiloh and I will be at Friend Bar in Silver Lake, Los Angeles, California. Silver Lake is, Silver Lake is a neighborhood with the unbelievable Bob Ruff and Janet Varney for a live event discussing the current season of Truth and Justice. Now, both Dr. Shiloh and I have guested on Truth and Justice a handful of times for our perspective on specific aspects of behaviors within several of the players involved in this ever unfolding Pinion Pines murder case, which is every time I turn around because I, I get behind on a handful of episodes and I come back and I'm like, what the hell is going on? It's I crazy. I can't wait to listen to the one that dropped today, the day that we're recording. It's I think it's going to be a big one. And I continue to be floored by the amount of information that Bob and Janet and Zach have discovered, their professionalism, their humor, their absolute doggedness about it has just yeah. been so crazy, crazy good. And of course, their professionalism is just top notch. So please catch up on their show. And if you're in the LA area, please join us tonight at Friend Bar in Silver Lake. Yep. Jump on our Instagram. You can go into our link tree and register for your spot. It's free, but we just want to make sure we have a good count of who's going to be there. So we'll stick around to chat with you guys afterwards as well. Okay. Last episode 120 was our Police Pursuits Revisited episode. This is the second time that Scott and I have decided to take some new information, take a different perspective, and give you an updated version of what's going on with a certain concept. The first time we did it was with Stockholm Syndrome, which was like two episodes apart because we found out some new data pretty quickly. This was 70 episodes apart, <laughs> something like that, where we decided, hey, we need to to talk about this from a different lens, a different perspective, really Absolutely. diving into the victim perspective here. And we're going to go even a step further with that because in January, our live stream is going to be with someone from PursuitSafety.org who's going to come and chat with us about their advocacy and awareness and why this is so important and really I think, take us to absolutely the next level of humanizing the victims of police pursuits. So please look forward to that. I have a tentative date of January 28th right now. So again, just stick to social media and we'll let you guys know when that live stream is happening. Awesome. Yes. So today we are giving you your vintage 
case of the month. This is Lover in the Attic. And what do you think of when you hear love triangle murder? I'm guessing some jealousy, some secrecy, crimes of passion, or on the darker side, murder-suicide is is the term that comes up sometimes. But whatever you think, have we got a story for you today? And it comes from 1920s Los Angeles. And this is the story of Dolly and Fred Oosterich. You picked a really good one. While this isn't a widely known case, the more you dive into it, the wilder it gets because this isn't a love triangle like the show Silk Stockings or something that you'd see on Investigation Discovery, is it? It just no. gets wild and weird and actually has some real psych underlying issues that, that I think you know, like we say, looking through the lens of history and the, the lens of misinformation or what we have, I still think it's fascinating as to what might have motivated this. So in a few of our previous episodes, we've used a great anthology of true crime stories and a book that was published back in the 50s. And we're going to be quoting a few of those paragraphs throughout this episode. And while the book is no longer in print, you can buy used copies online or it's likely available through your public library. I really encourage you to check it out if you get a chance, because the way it's written you hear that 1940s narrator in your head as you're reading it. it. It's wonderful. So we'll be posting the name and the ISBN number in our show notes. Very good. And yes, even though this is wacky and weird, we still have to consider that we're talking about murder. We're talking about gun violence as we get into this story. And I just think it's going to be interesting from so many angles. And like you said, we do find that a lot gets lost to history, including this publication you're talking about. But fortunately, we have a good deal of resources that helped us shape the case today. Well, thanks for pointing that out because you pulled all of the newspaper.com information, which means that the names that are printed or what are coming from legal records from the time. The adaptation that I read in this true crime book is exactly the same story. And each of the characters has almost like anagram names where they've taken the people's middle names and they've done like a version of it for their first name or they've done something completely different. So I don't know if when it was published, I guess one of our main characters was still alive and they wanted to maybe avoid getting sued. Not really sure, but both are worth reading or looking into if you're interested in it. So our story starts in Milwaukee, Wisconsin after the turn of the century. Walburga Osterich, also known as Dolly, was a housewife in her early 30s, and she was married to the owner of a Milwaukee apron factory, and his name was Fred Osterich. Fred was very successful, very hardworking businessman, but with that came very long hours away from home, and unfortunately, in hand with it, a hard drinking lifestyle. So he's working long hours, then he's heading to the bar or he's heading home and knocking a few back. Dolly had previously worked at the factory and she was reported to be very pretty and that she had a sunny disposition. And don't you know that's always foreboding <laughs> when somebody is described as having a sunny disposition. Did she you light up a room? <laughs> you must light up a room, right? If you light up a room, you're going to be a victim. If you have a sunny disposition, you're going to be an axe murderer Ooh. or something, right? So she was really the yin to his yang. He's gruff natured, rubbed people the wrong way. And Dolly apparently was a master at smoothing things over. And generally their marriage was happy enough, but the couple did lose their only child, Raymond, in 1910, just before his 10th birthday. Raymond's death was unexpected. And as is common after the death of the child, the couple was really never the same. So this is an interesting phenomenon that I just want to do a very quick like sidebar psychobabble about is, you know, I think one would think after a couple suffers the loss of a child that there would be sort of this trauma bonding on top of 
the bond that a married couple already has in that they could probably only understand it like the other person does. But we don't actually see that. We see that a, a large number of couples divorce after a child dies. Yeah. What do we know about this? Well, there is research. And of course, losing a child for any parent, well, the majority, the vast majority of parents is going to be a specific kind of trauma that's really, I mean, it's unlike any other kind of loss. And like I said, like the, ma the vast majority of parents' lives are going to be irrevocably altered. I think that the actual emotional ramifications associated with child loss can really trigger a wide range of psychological and physiological problems that can differ in people in severity and chronicity based on their own upbringing, their own resilience. The expected symptoms are gonna include depression, anxiety, but even cognitive and physical issues. And these symptoms can then even be related to stress that then manifests as marital problems, increasing the risk for suicide. And interestingly enough, the experience of psychosomatic, but very challenging physical pain, and of mm. course guilt. But the physical pain thing is very interesting. I mean, mm. it's not necessarily girl to this story, but the idea that someone is experiencing so much stress and depression and anxiety that it starts manifesting in their body as inflammation and pain. I think so, that's fascinating. Yeah, and then you essentially have two people kind of having these horrible traumatic experiences together. So it kind of doesn't leave room for one to comfort the other in a very simplistic way. I yeah, I'm, and I think historically, I mean, we're looking in the 20s when certainly the idea of talking it out was was not a thing. That's yeah. a relatively new development. And that is actually in the therapy room. When a couple has experienced a trauma, if you can't get them to talk about it with each other, there's not a lot of hope for the relationship. It's likely okay. going to have some problems. But it's not that they're actively being dicks to each other. It's that they just don't know how to communicate it because right. everybody's pain is their own specific pain. And you want your partner to get it. It's like we, we're you're the parent to my child as well. Why don't you get this in the way that I'm experiencing it? But that's mm. not the way it works. Right. right. So one thing that's really significant about all of these symptoms is that they can persist for a very long time after the child's death, generally more so than other family members. So if you lose a sibling, that's a, a terrible loss. If you lose a parent, that's a terrible loss. But a child's death statistically lasts a lot longer for people than other family members. And because of the severity and the length of the expression, those symptoms can also lead to diagnosable psychiatric conditions. We call it complicated grief. And complicated grief disorder, interestingly, includes many symptoms that are similar post-traumatic stress disorder. Bereaved parents have worse self-rated health and more negative affect than non-bereaved parents. So one of the things that's really interesting is how any strong emotion can cause the expression of what we call defense mechanisms. So defense mechanisms are the way that we behave or think in order to defend ourselves emotionally and psychologically from trauma or adverse events. It's sort of like this set of mental gymnastics, you know, we love that term here, that we do on ourselves generally in an unconscious manner in order to deal with or to distance ourselves from the full awareness of difficult thoughts, difficult feelings, and problematic behaviors. So we categorize defense mechanisms in terms of how primitive they are. And what's really interesting is that the more primitive a defense mechanism is, the more it is subject to the law of diminishing returns, meaning it works over the short term, but not so well in the long term. Then some common defense mechanisms are denial, acting out, repression. But the one that I think fits 
here is displacement. So displacement is when we redirect the thoughts or feelings or impulses that we have towards a specific person or a situation or an object and move it to another object or person or situation. And many times we think of displacement as when disempowered people take out their anger on others. Like a guy gets yelled at by his boss at work. So he goes home and he yells at his wife and then the wife yells at the kid and the kid kicks the dog, you know, instead of taking care of the anger on the most base level. But it can emerge when a person is really overwhelmed with so many emotions that there has to be an outlet. So that was a really long winded way. It was not a short sidebar. Thank you for <laughs> hoping that it was. Damn it. Thank you guys for sticking through. But the loss of a child gets very mixed up in the drive to nurture and to have one's sexual and physical needs met. It gets very complicated. So perhaps even in the sense of creating a sense of control in the environment for the bereaving parent. Thank you for that. Just setting the stage. Yeah. I've also heard that when you were saying, you know, you're not grieving like I am grieving and maybe some animosity or resentment gets built up from that. I've also heard that men fathers tend to grieve the future their child would have had, like what their potential was and the things they would have been involved in, where moms and women tend to grieve the time that they had already spent with the child. Wow. And so you're like on two different planes in a sense of, of actually totally what sense. you're grieving. Yeah. Interesting. Thank you. I did. I was not aware of that. I had not, that has not come up in, in my work, but like, thank you for illuminating that. It totally makes sense. Yeah. Well, so for Dolly and Fred, time marches on. And in 1913, Dolly one day found that her sewing machine wasn't working. So she's very frustrated. She contacts Fred, who's at work, to vent to him. And he says he'll send someone over to look at it, repair it. And the young man that shows up to fix it was 17-year-old Otto Sanhuber. Okay, so this is where it gets wild in comparing our source material, because the book that I have lays out this entire story and scenario, but uses different names with some similarities. In this telling, the characters are Dottie and Bert Wahlberger, and that the <laughs> paint and varnish salesperson sent his assistant, Gus, who was described as a wisp of a fellow, barely a hundred pounds in weight, his pale complexion, receding chin, and generally pathetic expression that lent him a certain engaging air of wistfulness. Wow. <laughs> okay. I get a, a vision of who this boy is. Yeah. And okay. Well, maybe it was actually a Wahlburgers restaurant in Wisconsin with young Marky Mark showing up. The, no, I'm just the ancestors of the, of the Wahlbergs. Yeah. <laughs> Well, we're going to stick with Fred and Dottie just to not yes. confuse folks and Otto as the boy and as reported in newspaper accounts. So there are reports that Dolly likely figured that Fred would send Otto since he worked at the factory. And because as the story goes, Dolly answered the door wearing only a robe and stockings for sure. <laughs> so this kicks off a bizarre love affair that would last a decade. And although Dr. Scott's book didn't mention it, the age of consent in Wisconsin at the time and currently is 16. Dolly really made a statement about what she wanted in a relationship. She couldn't have chosen someone who was more physically different than her husband. You know, this wispy boy. So at the beginning, Dolly and Otto conducted their clandestine relationship in the expected manner. They met in hotels to continue their tryst. But after a while, meeting outside the home became challenging and expensive. So the two began having sex in the Osterex bed. It was not long, though, before the neighbors began asking about the man who'd been hanging around at all hours 
while Fred was away. Dolly came up with the story that Otto was her, quote, vagabond half-brother. But even with the excuses, the two lovers were more and more indiscreet, and it was not long before Fred discovered their affair. When Dolly was confronted by her husband, she vowed to end the relationship. So that's another place where the stories seem to take different routes. In the sources that I have, Fred hires a private detective who reports back to him that he's observed Dottie and Otto taking nightly long walks in the moonlight. And the detective reports to Fred that Dottie and Otto are taking a train together to Chicago for a trip, like a little honeymoon trip for themselves. So... Fred and the private investigator booked the next train out to catch them, but they were unsuccessful. So when everybody's gotten back home and Dottie has returned the following week, she reportedly turned to Fred and said, you're a couple of bum detectives. I fooled you. So we're getting, happening. Okay. we're getting, I can see that happening, but we're also kind of getting a sense that maybe the author for my book was really trying to create like a yeah. more lascivious tone to the story. For sure. So Dolly coolly suggested a divorce, but Fred refused saying, why should I? I'd just be giving my money to that shrimp. <laughs> so Fred's <laughs> anger continued to escalate. However, he told the varnish company or the apron company, whichever we're going with, yeah. that they better fire that little shrimp or he would never buy a drop of their product again. And he told Dottie that if he saw Otto again, he would break every bone in his body. But she had a better idea. Instead of severing ties with Otto or leaving her husband, she opted to keep both men in her life. She convinced Otto to quit his job and move into the attic of the home she shared with her husband. So she gets to keep Otto around and he now will never be seen coming or going because he lives inside the home. So Otto does quit his job and he virtually has no family. So he begins to spend all of his time the time he's not boinking Dolly, of course, in his hideaway within the house. The attic was this really small space that contained little more than a cot, a bucket, and scores of books. So it's like the beginning of Harry Potter, only creepier. Yes, much creepier. He keeps himself busy working on writing pulp fiction stories that he hopes to have published one day. And the Los Angeles Times even reported, quote, at night he read mysteries by candlelight and wrote stories of adventures and lust. By day, he made love to Dolly Osterreich, helped her keep house, and made bathtub gin, end quote. So that's really interesting. All humor aside is, I guess, people would think, well, how could they get away with it? But right. we've already set up historically that Fred was a really heavy drinker. So he may be coming home soused Hopefully. every night and passing out in bed and not even hearing if somebody is thumping around in the attic. But it does say in the source materials that from time to time, Fred sensed that something off was happening in the house and he couldn't put his finger on it, but he was still feeling unsettled. So maybe this was the weekends when he wasn't yeah. working or something. Large amount of food would disappear from the icebox. And he did note that mysterious noises came from the attic. Dolly would then reassure Fred that nothing was amiss, nothing's wrong, just convincing him that it was his overactive imagination. And she also convinced him that he made it worse by overindulging in alcohol and too much workplace stress. So Dottie is a master at classic gaslighting. Yep. No, you're not hearing anything. That's actually exactly the plot of gaslighting, by the I way. Know. Somebody thumping around in the attic, right? Overactive imagination. So for five years, Dolly and Otto carried on this very odd relationship with Otto living in that very tiny cramped attic space. 
I'm sorry though. This is one, five years is too long for any side piece relationship, <laughs> much less in these conditions. Are you kidding me? I understand. But then again, let's go back to some of the psych issues we talked about earlier is I think that she starts to displace. Here's this guy that physically is very diminutive, very different from her husband. Yeah. He has no family. He's dependent on her. I think that she is actually displacing some of her grief onto him and creating this sort of nurturing relationship that's kind of fused with a sexual relationship. Anyway. Yeah. Freud would have a field day with it. Oh, yeah. But let's just, we haven't even really talked about how far they go. Because in 1918, Fred informed Dolly that they should sell the house and move to Los Angeles. Fred had opened a West Coast factory of either varnish or aprons, probably aprons. Yes. And decided to relocate to Southern California. Dolly did agree to the move as long as their new house had, what do you think, Dr. Shiloh? A basement? <laughs> Close. But there are no basements in L.A. There are very few basements in L.A. But they did want an attic. She had she demanded that we have to have an attic. How interesting. And that's exactly the type of house they found. Dolly found a home overlooking Sunset Boulevard, complete with an attic. Today, the house sits at 858 North Lafayette Park Place in the Silver Lake Echo Park area. And Dolly actually sent Otto there early so he would be waiting for her when she arrived. And for four more years... Their arrangement carried on the same way as it had in Milwaukee. But all of that came to a halt on August 22nd, 1922, when Otto was cooped up in his attic space and Dolly and Fred began arguing in the main space of the house. Apparently, it sounded like a pretty serious fight because Otto burst out of his hiding space and into the living room where Dolly and Fred were. Otto was brandishing two pistols. Fred recognized Otto from the factory. I can't even imagine what a mindfuck that was where he's like, this Seriously. kid is now standing in his living room. Well, he's a man at this point. Across the country, right? Right, across the country. So he recognizes Otto and as if he wasn't already angry because of the argument with Dolly, this sent him through the roof. A struggle ensues between the two men and one of the guns goes off. Fred was killed. And as you can imagine, the real events were hotly debated since the only survivors were the longtime lovers. However, it can be confirmed that Fred suffered three gunshot wounds by a 25 caliber pistol, two in his chest and one in the back of his head. Fascinating because this is really similar to Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, right? Yes, yes. Exactly. Very strange. So reportedly, Otto and Dolly panicked. They quickly come up with a plan to blame it on intruders. Otto locked Dolly in a closet from the outside, taking the key and the guns with him to the attic. They knew neighbors would report the gunshots, and this way, Dolly would have an alibi. She couldn't have shot her husband while locked away. So the Los Angeles Police Department responded to the home. Dolly was let out of the closet and claimed that a robber had shot Fred, had taken some expensive belongings, and then locked her in a closet before fleeing. An alternative story she told at some point claimed that she was pushed into the closet as she was hanging the fur coat that she had worn that evening. She continued to insist that she and her husband never fought. The intensity of her denial made the detectives quite skeptical. What married couple doesn't fight, right? I mean, that doesn't make any sense that you're just like literally never fight. Yeah. Except for me and my husband, we never well, fight. Of Do with it, of course. We just glare at each other from across the room. Additionally, they noted that her husband was killed with a 25 caliber pistol, very small caliber, generally considered to be a woman's gun back then. Okay. Is that what you have, Dr. Shiloh? Do you have like a little dainty lady's gun? Yes, it's so dainty. Dainty with a pink handle. <laughs> it fits in my bra. 
It fits in my back uterus with my chapstick. (laughs) It's in the back uterus. Yes. Okay. Listen to previous episodes to understand what we're talking about. So now Dolly's a widow. She moves into a new house and continues on with her life. And we might assume that she and Otto would eventually bring the relationship into the open. I mean, I think by now Otto probably should be allowed to have a normal life other than the fact he's a killer. He's been living in an attic for like eight years. But instead, when Dolly moved, her voluntary live-in sex slave once again took up residence in her attic. Somehow, likely with Dolly's help, Otto managed to get a few pulp stories published. And with this money, plus probably a few nickels and dimes here and there from Dolly, he purchased a typewriter to keep writing. And while he was busy typing away, Dolly gets herself a new lover, her estate attorney, Herman S. Shapiro. She was so fond of Shapiro that she gifted him a diamond watch, which because he was the estate attorney for her and Fred, he recognizes this watch as one that's exceptionally similar to one that she said the burglar had stolen the night her husband was killed. Hmm. Hmm. So she explains, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually just found that later under a window seat cushion because that's where we keep our diamond watches. It's interesting how she chooses her new partner because very conveniently, Shapiro spent long hours away from their shared home due to his profession. So enter Roy Klum, another lover to keep Dolly occupied, though it seems that Dolly had a secondary use for Klum. She used him to help her get rid of the guns used to shoot Fred. She played on feigned trauma, telling Klum that she needed him to ditch the gun because it resembled the burglar's gun and it activated her. Plus, she said that she didn't want to get into trouble. So Klum took the pistol and tossed it right into a very famous L.A. iconic place, the La Brea Tar Pits. You're not going to be getting it back after it goes into the tar pits. You would think, but explain what the tar pits are, though, first. So the La Brea Tar Pits are a very famous museum and space here in L.A. It's iconic. It's a tourist spot. It also has a great park that people take their kids to. But it's also an active paleontological research site right in the middle of L.A. In fact, Hancock Park was formed around a group of tar pits where natural asphalt has been seeping up for the ground for like tens of thousands of years. And over many centuries, the bones of many trapped animals, think like the size of woolly mammoths and giant sloths, have been preserved in the tar. So essentially, it's this really this very deep lake of tar right off Wilshire Boulevard. Yeah. It's crazy to think about that. Yes, yes. So and did I, they find the gun? <laughs> well, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Okay. So Dolly also got the other gun to disappear because remember, Otto had two pistols that night. She ended up sweet-talking a neighbor of hers into burying it on his property. That's not suspicious. But really, at this point, things start to fall apart for Dolly. Dolly eventually broke up with Clum. And what did he do? He went to the police with the story about tossing the gun into the La Brea tar pits. And they actually were able to get it out. So wow. I'm guessing he didn't toss it that deep in. Maybe it was at the shoreline or something because that would have been crazy. But she then has a falling out with Shapiro the attorney lover. And he ends up telling the police that Dolly actually did inform him about Otto's involvement in Fred's murder. So he tells the police about that. Dolly gets taken into custody on July 12th, 1923. Her neighbor seeing the gig is up, he digs up the other gun and takes it to the cops. So you know, you have like all of these men turning on her with it's what they know. It's all falling apart. Yeah, it's all falling apart. All the stories, all the evidence. However, in the end, because both of the weapons were so corroded, 
they could not be tied to Dolly in any way. So they really just have these firsthand accounts from the witnesses. So she eventually dropped her story of the unknown assailants and tells the police about the actual events of the night of the murder. She says that she and Fred had argued, Otto overheard the spat and feared that Fred would hurt Dolly. So he rushed out of the attic to defend her and shot Fred. So really, she's putting this all squarely on Otto. Otto actually remained at large for eight years after he murdered Fred. And at some point, it's unclear when, because of all these different reports, Shapiro might have found out about him and told him to get lost. He left the attic and he moved to Canada and changed his name to Walter Klein, reportedly, and then married another woman before again returning back to Los Angeles. So eight years after the death of her husband, Dolly was charged with conspiracy to commit murder. Otto was arrested and confessed and told the police the entire story. Now, his story was that he had an overpowering love for Dolly. And he explained he even believed that Dolly was actually going to be killed in that moment and that he shot Fred to protect her. He took officers to the house and showed them where exactly he hid in the attic. He was charged with murder. And later, when the case progressed to trial, he recanted that story and the charges were dropped due to the statute of limitation issues at the time. All charges against Dolly were dropped as well. She was 53 at the time of Fred's death. And I just want to note here, there's there's some sources that refer to a trial or trials. And I think from reviewing the articles at the time that this was the coroner's inquest. So if you'll remember, I think some of our other vintage stories talk about this. Since there's a dead person, in this case, a murder, and I think in some others, we've just seen it with like dead body cases, they don't know the cause of death, that they have these coroner inquests that very much are like a trial, almost like a preliminary hearing these days where they would kind of put forth evidence, put witnesses on the stand and just see what they have have if there's enough to move forward. So this probably even occurred before Dolly and Otto were arrested. It also seems that Dolly went to trial on the conspiracy charge, but walked free after a hung jury, because I have found that information in the records as well. And interestingly, she was represented by famed Hollywood attorney, Jerry Geisler. So he represented everyone back in the day. He's also the one that got George Hodel off on the incest case against his daughter. So the trial or the case became known as the Batman case because Otto had been kept in a secluded cave-like attic. So all the big headlines are splashed with Batman. Batman. Lover. Yeah, Batman attic lover. And as with many true crime stories of the times, the media really just had a field day with this one. Dolly is painted as this lusty femme fatale with an insatiable sexual appetite. You know, she's parading a string of lovers through her home for years. You can just imagine how this was covered left and right by the LA media. Yeah. So again, like we've said before, it's really hard to piece through, even with newspapers.com, which is supposed to be, we want to, or we expect that newspapers from that time are going to be maybe even somewhat more legit than the media is today, but there is no guarantee no. that that is actually factual. The articles from the time really do try and paint her as a, you know, tantalizing black widow lover. And after years of these lurid headlines and beating the charges, Dolly's actually left a very wealthy woman and no one actually serves jail time for the murder of Fred Oosterich. So right. after all this time, after all the drama, finding weapons, bodies, inquests, nobody serves any time for it. 
Yeah, she dies in 1961 at the age of 75, less than two weeks actually after marrying her second husband and 30-year companion, Ray Herbert Hedrick. Wait, that would be her third, right? So husband and then Shapiro. No, she didn't marry Shapiro. Oh, she didn't marry him. Okay. No. So, and we really have no idea what happened to Otto. Maybe he went back to Canada. If if he knows what's good for him, he probably skipped back up there. Probably. I mean, 20 years after all these events take place, the little delivery man did make a full confession, which of course he then repudiated during the other trial that followed. But under cross-examination, he told substantially the same story that he had previously given in his confession. So we can follow that. And here's what is quoted from the book. And the names are different. Instead of his name, I guess they rewrote his name as Gus Huberman. My name is Gus Huberman. That is to say, I'm known by that name. I'm an orphan. I think I was born in New York and that my parents' name was Weir. That belief is based partly on what I've been told and partly on fancy. I was raised by a family named Huberman in Minneapolis. I attended school until the sixth grade. Then I went to work in a paint factory. I have been there two years when a man who liked me took me to the Liberty Paint and Varnish Company and gave me a job. I was then 16 years old. About this time, I met Mr. and Mrs. Wahlberger. They operated a little furniture shop. One day, I was sent to their place to pick up some paint delivered by mistake. It seemed that Mrs. Wahlberger liked me right away. She called me Gus, and I called her Bird. Mrs. Wahlberger was kind to me. After that, I went off into the Wahlberger shop to take orders and deliver them. The Wahlbergers had a son, Raymond, who was at the time about eight years old. I used to play with him. Then he died. Soon afterwards, I gave up my job and went to St. Louis on a trip with Ms. Wahlberger. And when we returned, she said to me, now, if my husband catches you, he will kill you. She would not let me go outside the house that day. And the little bed that their son had used was up in the attic. I slept on it. Wow. So... Hmm. There's the timeline is interesting because in this confession, allegedly by this book, he interacted with her two years earlier, like two years before the child died. Right. 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 Well, and it kind of sounded like when we talked at the top that, you know, she knew Fred would be sending Otto to fix this thing, like kind of set it all up. So, I mean, there really is an impression that she knew him from the factory or that he was like kind of their little fix it guy. So this makes sense to me. Again, now it's saying furniture shop. So we have all these different types of businesses. I did find a newspaper article from Pasadena Star News after Fred's death, where his brother who lived in Pasadena, John, was kind of like contesting the will. And it did talk about the apron factory. And yes, that he did open one out here. I'm trying to think of other little things. You know, we talked about the salacious headlines. It looked like it could have been an article from today. There's another one when she was selling the home where Fred was murdered. It was like murder mansion for sale. Wow. You know, it was kind of recounting the story and things like that. So they definitely were putting out tons of articles. I'm sure through time, you know, it it got all sort of mishmash together, but Yeah, I mean, this story particularly feels the most different like than the other stories we've done in comparing them to the real articles. So I'm I'm just, you know, she didn't die till 1961, so she, she definitely would have still been alive. I think it was 19 was it 61 or 71? Yeah, no, you're right. She died in 61 at the age of 75. So yeah, maybe they just had to change things up. Probably. Him. I mean, the more the more I think about it, like you think in your story, the initial meeting is that her sewing machine is broken, which makes sense that, that if he works in an apron factory, 
totally. would have knowledge of a sewing machine and they send somebody over. Yeah. Whereas, but maybe that apron factory still was in existence and they didn't want to get sued for writing the chapter in the book. So they make mm. it furniture and varnish and yeah. that kind of stuff and yeah. paint delivery. But again, the psych issue here kind of expands into other things or other expressions of displacement, which I find fascinating because one of the more common things that can happen in parenting, and I understand that for the most part, parents are doing what they need to do, is when you parentify a child or you try and move a child into a place that they're not supposed to be. Like you, you make sometimes if a spouse is having problems with their their spouse, mm -hmm. they will take the male or the female child and make them sort of an ersat spouse. Not not in a sexual way. Right, right. Sometimes horribly in a sexual way. Yep. Thankfully, that's very rare. But to sort of share your marital frustrations with your preteen son or your preteen daughter is never, never appropriate. Right. And that's another example of displacement of emotional need. Yeah. So anyway. Well, and, you know, they perhaps in that book had to change things up for certain reasons. Right. But pop culture has embraced this strange tale because there's two films made about it. Two? Two. So there's The Bliss of Mrs. Blossom, released in 1968, and has Shirley MacLaine playing the role of a wife with a broken sewing machine and explores the comedic side of the love triangle. I wonder hmm. how well that one ages. <laughs> have to, we'll have to look that up and see if there's a murder involved. And then in a more modern retelling of the tale, the 1995 film, The Man in the Attic, features Neil Patrick Harris playing the role of the locked up lover. That was very, that was actually very controversial at the time. I think it was, was it a TV movie? I it might have, have been a TV movie. No idea, but I, I want to go but back. If anybody who's listening, whenever, let's do this for, for Neil Patrick Harris. If you run into him, just say, I loved you in The Man in the Attic. Oh my just gosh. Like, compliment him on some obscure film Something. that he did when he was so young that would be <laughs> that, hilarious that would be hilarious and then let him know that we talked about it on la not so confident yes <laughs> give, us, give us some exposure folks we appreciate it maybe he'll invite us to the magic castle oh that would be great to go again <laughs> all right well there's your vintage episode interesting i want to i want the house still exists i want to go drive by i mean it's pretty we close to, to work so we should go drive by on our way to get what is it? Guisados tacos. Oh <laughs> yeah. <sunset. laughs> yeah. That'd be great. Sounds we like can a field post trip. Some, we'll post a link to the La Brea tar pits for people who don't know what it is. Cause it actually is really fascinating. That'd it's be super cool. cool. Yes, absolutely. All right, Scott. Thank you. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. And maybe we'll see some of you guys tonight at the event yeah. with Bob and Janet and Zach at friend bar. That'd yeah, be cool. That would be so fun. All right, everyone. We'll see you next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye, folks. Bye-bye. We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network in partnership with Glassbox Media. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our post-production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Usry of Ear Cult Productions. The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is composed and performed by the talented Kevin McLeod. He graciously allows us to use his music via a Creative Commons attribution license. And you can check out all of Kevin's amazing work on YouTube. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, 
and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Media inquiries and bookings are scheduled at alienistentertainment at gmail.com. Please join us each month on Saturdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on YouTube entitled Behind the Couch. Stay tuned to all of our social media for our live streaming scheduling announcements. Subscribe to LA Not So Confidential so you never miss a new episode. And lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast. With a subscription, you get an ad-free listening experience and you'll be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening and join in with us next time on LA not so confidential. Bye folks.